Hi, everybody. Thank you all for being here. Uh, my guest today is, is a very special person. Um, yeah, it's an absolute honor to have him here. He is a Christian theologian, an analytical philosopher. He's an apologist and an author. He is currently a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University and holds the endowed Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics. He has written and edited over 40 books, including this one, Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, in the area of philosophy, of religion, apologetics, theology, and ethics in the Bible. He has contributed a great number of articles to various professional journals and has written many essays for edited books. For six years, he served as the president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. He is um, one of the go-to people if it comes to uh, moral relativism, which is like the theme uh, uh, of this time's discussion. As I mentioned before, he is the author of Is God a Moral Monster? And uh, this particular book, of course, I would highly suggest this one. It's a very technical book, but this is not something that we're going to delve into. Um, Dr. Paul, Pol Paul Copan, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Glad to join you. Thanks for the invitation. 100%. I, could, uh, I was uh, delighted to hear that uh, this, uh, this conversation which should start. And I would like to, uh, to start it off like with the first question. What is moral relativism? Moral relativism is the view that maintains a moral perspective, moral beliefs are relative to an individual or to a culture or to a period of time, uh, and that there is no universal uh, or universally applicable uh, moral standard for all people. Indeed, there is no moral standard at all. Uh, morality is simply what is perhaps preferred, uh, what one grows up with, uh, and you are simply, and when someone says, oh, that's right or that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. Well, they might say things like, well, who are you to judge others? Uh, or they may say, who are you to impose your morality on others? Or they may say uh, you know, that, you know, who made you the moral authority? Uh, and so it, it, it pushes away from any sort of objective moral standard uh, or moral duties that bind us and rather what, it, what moral relativism uh, maintains is that whatever is right for you is right for you, whatever is right for me is right for me. So it's relative to our own culture, our own preference, our own uh, period of history, uh, but one cannot say that there are indeed objective moral standards that apply to all people like uh, don't commit adultery uh, or torturing babies for fun is wrong or something like that. You may not like it. You say, oh, I wouldn't do it. Uh, but they, they don't want to bring themselves to the point of saying, yes, that is really wrong. Whoever does that uh, violates his moral duty, violates uh, another person's rights and so forth. There is no such thing as rights. Uh, there is no such thing as duties uh, for the, you know, when it comes to moral relativism. Right. So, so how would you actually... Uh, uh, say that like how did actually like this particular I would actually want to say the, the, the popular view of moral relativism today how did it actually came to be well it, it wasn't always the case but 
what's what changed yeah yeah well uh, uh a few things i suppose uh in uh previous you know if we wanted to talk about a an, an earlier way of thinking uh we can call it the pre-modern understanding uh where god was generally considered or the supernatural or some sort of a transcendent realm was the it was what shaped how societies say in the west uh you know would think that these provided the categories for uh, for people to say no you shouldn't do that or human beings were made in the image of god that's why they have their dignity and worth well with the uh with the coming of modern <clears throat> philosophy with rene descartes uh the one who said i think therefore i am uh, he, in doing, in, in, in doing that, he shifted things from focusing on God as the starting point for knowledge <clears throat> to become really more like human beings now become the starting point for knowledge. It wasn't as though Descartes denied God's existence. He was a devout Catholic, but he uh, inadvertently decentered God from the conversation and, and led to uh, an unfolding of views that detach themselves from God as the basis for morality, for human dignity, for goodness, and basically operating along the lines of that common slogan, well, we don't need God to be good, uh, or I don't need to believe in God to tell me right from wrong. And of course, uh, that's true in the sense that you don't have to believe in God in order to know right from wrong. Uh, you, know, you know, God's existence, you may reject God's existence, but because you've been made in the image of God, you still recognize moral truths, moral realities, that this is how we're wired to operate as, as moral beings. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so the relativist, of course, will reject that. But through the unfolding of history, uh, we come to see that God is less and less relevant. God is less and less connected to human dignity, moral duties, and so forth. And then with the coming of what we call the postmodern mindset, after, you know, after all of these new um, ideologies, worldviews, uh, various meta-narratives like uh, rationalism or scientism or Nazism or communism, Marxism, uh, once they showed that these cannot be sustained with, you know, of course, the 20th century prison camps, uh, labor camps, uh, concentration camps, and, and uh, of course, you know, these, you know, these ideologies prove to be uh, you know, deeply flawed and oppressive to human beings. So the postmodern says, well, forget any sort of objective moral values, meta-narratives oppress, and so we can't speak of any unifying vision of reality. And so this makes moral beliefs all the more vulnerable to, well, who am I to say that someone else is wrong? Uh, we all have our own individual perspectives, our own individual uh, narratives. And, uh, and so we can also talk about other philosophical influences like Kant, you know, the distinguishing between the way things are and the way we things appear to us. And this also leading to a certain uh, division that we, well, we can't really know reality. All we have are appearances. So who's to say that someone else is right or wrong? So we can talk about other influences along those lines as well. But, uh, but again, there have been a number of inputs that have contributed to a more relativistic mindset. And I think that uh, we are dealing with, I think fundamentally, we're dealing with a, an authority crisis 
um, who make you know who is the who speaks for for everyone? Who is the authority to whom we should listen? There are bumper stickers here in the United States where it says "question authority." Of course, there is a presumed authority behind the, the statement "question authority." Uh, so, so again, authority is inescapable. It's either going to be something external to ourselves, or it's going to be something that's up to us. And a lot of people are so suspicious of authority that they say, "Well." I guess I'll be my own authority. And so everyone does what is right in his own eyes and you, know, you have relativism. So, so anyway, that's, so, but, but the problem, but I guess to push back on that issue of authority, the question is, well, what makes you the preferred authority? Uh, we'll have, you know, what justifies your claim to your own authority? And is it possible that there is an authority that can be trusted that uh, is say worthy of worship like God? Uh, if, God, if there is a good God who is worthy of worship, then we have uh, hope for finding uh, a, a proper place for authority uh, rather than if it's left up to us. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what's, what is happening uh, today. Uh, even actually the, the statement, uh, uh, it, yeah, it beats itself like the universal claim is that there are no universals. That's a universal claim in and of itself. So that beats the argument. Sure, sure. Uh, so... Um, wouldn't you, you already mentioned before Nazism, communism, all the, all the isms that, that are out there that we human beings created. Um, this, in my personal experience also, and, and, and how I see in the world, it's still it's applied today. For instance, one important subject that uh, we Christians neglect is abortion, I would say, right? Sure. So, um, we look uh, in hindsight, we look at the Nazis and we say, yeah, those people were bad, but they were like in, in, in their, in a particular time frame, it was a good thing to do uh, right now. And, and if it comes to abortion, everybody is like, oh, it's a great thing. It is a choice, but on the back of it, you're still murdering babies and mm -hmm. we're trying to justify it for our own, uh, for our own selves. And it's very scary how we collectively like, yeah, talk everything in, in like, like like it's a great thing that we that we are the standards of morality. And as you mentioned before, it's not good to have ourselves as the the, the moral standard. Right. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah. Very yeah. good point. Um, so my third question is going a, a, bit, a bit more theological. Why is God not the blame for the existence of evil? Well, of course, that is a, a very full question, and uh, we could spend much time on it. I, I do talk about this in uh, a number of my uh, books. Uh, most, you know, more recently, my book uh, called "Loving Wisdom," which is a you know a, a guide to Christian philosophy, and has several chapters on the problem of evil itself. But fundamentally, we ought to see evil as a deviation or a departure from the way things ought to be. Evil is not the way things were created. God created all things good. We read in Genesis 1, we see that uh, evil is an intrusion into the good world that God has made. And so for simply talking about evil, we don't have a basis for calling something evil unless we already have a standard, a standard of goodness or some sort of a design plan or blueprint that, uh, you know, by which we can judge something to be de a deviation. So I, I use the example of counterfeit money. 
Uh, counterfeit money makes no sense unless there is genuine currency. Great analogy. Like euros or dollars yeah. or something like that. Uh, now you can have euros or dollars or pounds uh, without counterfeit money, but counterfeit money makes no sense unless those currencies are already in existence. So likewise, we could talk about goodness without having to talk about evil. Um, you know, a lot of some people say, well, you know, if you've got evil, you've got to have goodness. If you've got goodness, you've got to have evil. No, you can have goodness. In fact, uh, you can have goodness that, of course, which is the standard. It's sort of like the, uh, the you know, the, the, the meter, uh, you know, to, you know, that it becomes the standard for, for everything and anything that conforms to that standard, that meter is indeed uh, true. But anything that claims to be a meter that deviates from that uh, is a false reading, uh, a false measure. So likewise, we can, you know, C.S. Lewis said that uh, we can't understand what, say, a crooked stick is unless we have an idea of what straight is. And in the same way, goodness is prior. It is you know, metaphysically and logically prior to evil. Uh, so at the very foundation of our understanding of morality, uh, we look at the, the, you know, what is the basis of goodness? And we look at the character of God. We say, uh, here we have a, you know, God who is good. And then that evil is a, an, a kind of an accidental, uh, as it were, intrusion. It's not something that is part of the way God made things. Although it, it is pervasive, uh, we talk about human beings having, uh, you know, Jeremiah talking about uh, the human heart being deceitful and desperately wicked and so forth, we get that. Uh, but that wasn't the way things were at the beginning. It's sort of like what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 8, that uh, when it talks about divorce, that, and you can say the same thing, you can't understand divorce unless you understand what marriage is. Uh, Jesus right. was saying that uh, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of human hearts. It wasn't because this was just, you know, as good an arrangement as marriage. Uh, you know, no, marriage is the ideal and that God's ideal is for one man and one woman as one flesh for one lifetime. And so when there is this uh, deviation, this departure from the way things ought to be, then we see that as inferior or problematic. Uh, and rather than saying it's just you know, just as good or uh, one arrangement among many, uh, we say, no, it's a departure from the way things ought to be. And so at a fundamental level, we can go into a lot more um, explanations, uh, but fundamentally we need to, first of all, understand that, you know, what evil is. It's a departure from the way things ought to be. And so it is the, because of the introduction of evil through free creatures rather than God, that evil comes into the world or into existence. We can talk about uh, angelic beings uh, that rebel against God, but we can also talk about human beings who also resist the authority uh, and wisdom and goodness of God by uh, taking matters into their own hands, uh, by, uh, by seeing God in a negative light rather than a positive one. Uh, and so they enter into the experience of evil 
through their the disobedient choice that they make, their refusal to trust God, uh, to put their trust in themselves. And so here we have the introduction of evil into the world. So, so God is not to blame for, uh, for evil. Uh, you know, G- Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? So the same thing in James chapter one, you know, that uh, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Don't say that God is leading me into sin or that God is the author of sin. Right. Uh, no, it's, you know, God is the one who, you know, he is the, he is every good and perfect gift comes from God. So he is not to be seen as the author uh, or originator of evil. Right. That was a, that's a great analogy by uh, counterfeit money. Like, like short, shortly said, like uh, you cannot have shadow without the light. Mm-hmm. So therefore it, it has, it, it needs each other. And right. yeah, we like to blame everything to something else except to ourselves. And you mentioned already before um, Jeremiah 17, nine for the heart is, is wickedly deceitful. Mm-hmm. So that alludes to my next question. Um, you, uh, a couple of minutes ago, you said that we were created in the image of God and that uh, God, everything God created was good, but at the same time, we are also wicked. So my next question is, are there really no good people? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a good, I think I'm a good person. Aren't I therefore a good person? Yeah. Well, a, a couple of things to understand here. A lot of, some people say, well, I'm a pretty good person. And often what they mean, at least in a lot of the conversations I've had is I'm, I'm, I've done enough good things that uh, you know, God ought to accept me. So when you talk about Jesus and the need for a savior, well, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, well, I think if we look at our own hearts, uh, if, if we have any self-awareness, we'll recognize, you know, I've, I've got a lot of flaws, a lot of moral flaws. I, um, it's easy to try to be self-justifying, to get out, of, out from being blamed. Uh, you, you, try, you know, it's easy, how easy it is to rationalize away our wrongdoing, uh, to suppress our conscience uh, and so forth. You know, there's a, you know, John Calvin talked about how, you know, he dared a person to scrutinize and look into the depths of his own conscience and see who in the end is not covered by infinite pollutions, he said. And I think that this is a true, gives us a true understanding of the, the depths of our own human hard-heartedness, evil uh, tendencies. Jesus said in, you know, that, it, you know, in, in, in Mark 7, for example, that it's not what goes into a person that defiles him, but what comes out of a person. So here's Jesus saying this about our own condition. So it's, so we ought to take the view about ourselves that Jesus does. Now, of course, on the other other hand, Jesus recognizes that all, you know, the image of God in, in, in everyone, uh, and he is a friend of sinners and tax gatherers, and that it's not uh, coming to a certain moral level in order for us to be accepted before God, but rather uh, we receive God's acceptance of us by grace and, of course, by virtue of what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross. But, uh, but so we need to understand ourselves as a mixed bag, uh, as we say, uh, as, uh, you know, as a marred beauty 
that God, and we need to remember that Genesis 1 and 2 precedes Genesis 3. And I think a lot of people will focus on our own fallenness uh, immediately, and, 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 uh, and sometimes we develop a theology about humanity or an anthropology that is so creation-denying that it becomes problematic and, and even false in, you know, when you look at it on the face of it, because God made us in his image, that there is, you know, that God, what God has created is good, and we ought to affirm those good things about God's creation. So what are some of those good things about how God created us? Well, God created us with the capacity to be creative and imaginative. You think of the arts and culture. Uh, God created us to, uh, to be, um, you know, rational, moral, spiritual beings. He gave us those capacities, the capacity to know God, the capacity to relate deeply uh, to one another, uh, the capacity to create uh, culture and so forth. A, a number of wonderful gifts that God has given to us and that in his common grace, these things are available to us all to cultivate and to, uh, to be innovative and to do things that can help our you know, fellow human beings, etc. So there are many manifestations of the goodness of God that are common to, you know, to our humanity. Uh, so those ought not to be denied. So we should not reject the things that God has created, but ought to affirm them. But there are also things that come as a result of the fall that we ought to repudiate, that we ought to deny. And we think of our own self-centered tendency that has come as a result of the fall, that we tend to look for, you know, out for our own interests before that of others. Uh, as Martin Luther said, we are curved in on ourselves. And so we ought to note those things, keep them in check, and not simply affirm whatever desire I have. And of course, there's a problem with modernity, uh, that we uh, want to affirm those things that we feel. Uh, we want to affirm those things that we uh, prefer. We, want to, we don't want to be uh, told that those certain passions are bad. We want to indulge in all of them. Right. And so, so we're called up short because those passions... Uh, emotions and so forth that, that God, you know, you know, they're originally, they're rooted in God's creation, but they can become corrupted. They can go, be taken to excesses uh, that we find ourselves imbalanced in our own souls so that certain things get the preference over others like, you know, bodily pleasures and, and, and so forth, rather than prioritizing that uh, in accordance with what God's priorities for us are. Right. So, so when it comes to, you know, are there really, you know, good people, any good people? Well, again, there are things to affirm about our human condition, uh, that we are created by God and the things that go along with that. But then there are things as a result of the fall that we ought to say, no, these are some bad things uh, about us and that we ought not to affirm those fallen tendencies, but rather to live in light of the way that God designed us to live, the way that God desires for us to live, and the way in which Christ, uh, through his redemption, calls us to live in a far greater uh, illuminated light uh, than even before. So those are a few reflections mm -hmm. on the question of you know, human no, goodness good uh, yeah. and, uh, and also some of the negatives that go along with that. Yeah, right. So, so a little side question uh, on this particular topic. 
like we uh, see all the way throughout the New Testament, including in on the Mount of on the on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where our Lord says, "You need to be holy, for I am holy," or "You need to be perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect." So there is. Um, wouldn't you agree that God has given us free will, and what we do with that free will is what would uh, uh, mean what that would mean for our eternal salvation? Like holiness, God cannot. God is gracious of course but he also needs to be just and but part of being just it has it needs to be a bit harsh and in order to become to the lord is to be holy right it's, well sure i mean god god's standards of justice uh again within himself uh, god is a just god and so just as we would not find it morally appropriate to let those who engage in sexual assault and murder and so forth, to let them back out on the street uh, once they're caught, uh, right. but rather to hold them to account to, uh, again, to render punishment. Uh, accordingly, uh, there'd be something wrong with a world in which people simply got away with murder or rape or something like that. And in the same way, when I, from a cosmic uh, perspective, it would be problematic if God did not deal with us according to standards of justice. Uh, though he loves, uh, he also is just. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, of course, we see both the justice of God or the holiness of God and the love of God displayed, that God takes sin seriously. He doesn't simply uh, pass it over and ignore it. Uh, God takes it seriously, but takes it upon himself to take the penalty that we deserved so that we might be right with God. So it is because God loved the world that he gave. So we don't, we don't want to deny, we obviously want to say that it's the love of God that motivated his, uh, his uh, self-sacrifice for us in the first place. Uh, but again, it is in keeping with that uh, justice of God uh, that, uh, that both the demands of justice are met as well as the loving desire of God for humanity is also addressed. So we see a wonderful convergence in the cross of Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. Because uh, uh, like one of the decrees of the Christians is Jesus saves. But then the question is saves of what? Now, there's your answer. Like we first need to understand that we are depraved, uh, as, as, as John Calvin said, we are total depravity. Like we need to get that, get that thing first. Of course, we are made in the image of God, but in order to, to be reconciled with him, as it was in the beginning, we have to accept uh, the cross. So um, uh, my next question, uh, uh, we already mentioned Jesus, but wasn't there any other way than Jesus? Yeah. Well, of course, Jesus himself asks this question in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Where he said, you know, if it be possible, you know, let this cup pass from me, but uh, not as I will. Uh, but as you will, uh, as he says to his father. And uh, if there had been another way, uh, yes, uh, this would have been a uh, obviously an appropriate thing for God to undertake. Uh, rather than going through all of the suffering, uh, through the uh, you know through the the burdens that Jesus Christ bore on our behalf, the the destiny that Jesus senses he fixed. Um, as he set his face like a flint to, uh, to go to Jerusalem and that he knew that he had come to die on behalf of uh, hum humanity and to, uh, to be a ransom 
uh, for us all. Uh, but, uh, but, and so some people say, well, you know, I don't need, you know, some people say, well, I, you know, I, I'm a pretty good person. You know, you, sometimes you even talk about people maybe that are from a, you know, nominal Catholic or Protestant background or whatever, and they'll say, you know, well, and I'll talk about being that pretty good person. Well, then you have to ask the question, well, well, why was it that Jesus actually came? If, if you could just get along on your own merits, then what's the point of Jesus coming and suffering and dying? Uh, and of course, it's even delusional. If, if all of this could have been bypassed, if there were another way, if the, if the cup could be passed uh, from Jesus, uh, that, uh, that he wouldn't have to go to the cross, then yes, that would be, that would be uh, preferred. Uh, but there was no other way. And so what you know, I think as we look at the distinctiveness of the Christian faith in contrast to other world religions, uh, other even philosophies of life in general, where we have to save ourselves, we have to rescue ourselves, where salvation or enlightenment uh, is up to us, the Christian faith says, no, you cannot do it. It is not up to you. Uh, you know, we can talk about, you know, as some people have put it, you know, religion in this sense is really human beings attempting to find acceptance before God. So you obey, you do the right things, and then God accepts you. In the Christian faith, God accepts you, <laughs> and then you obey. Uh, you don't, you don't, you know, that is, and we're accepted on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. And so rather than having to deal with the burden of saving ourselves, which is a huge burden, one that we can find, never find reassurance or confidence that we have done enough. Uh, that's what the gospel is all about, that Christ has done enough. His death is sufficient for our salvation, for our acceptance before God. And so therefore, as a result of that, we make it our ambition, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, to be pleasing to God. We, you know, we don't have to make it our ambition to be accepted before God. That's already been taken care of. But now, uh, like in a marriage, when you're accepting one another at, you know, at, you know, in the marriage ceremony, you accept one another. But then afterwards, you make it your ambition to be pleasing to one another. The acceptance has already been taken care of, uh, but yet so many people uh, live by that burden of, I, I need to try to keep trying to be accepted by God, or I need to live up to a certain standard, and we find ourselves repeatedly failing, uh, and that's why we need the grace of God. We need outside assistance. It, it, it cannot be up to us. Um, you know, human, human beings have, uh, you know, we, we fail miserably when we, and someone has put it this way, that there's a moral gap between our own performance and the standard that we profess, the standard that we fall short of, uh, that there's this big gap. And what can actually fill that gap? It can't be through doing more things to try to compensate. No, there's a, the gap is going to be there in, inevitably. But grace actually fills that gap so that our acceptance before God is based on the ideal, the perfection of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, that he did what we could not do. And so what has been, what he has accomplished has been imputed to us uh, legally, um, you know, that he, he, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That is, he took that penalty for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's a wonderful picture, uh, wonderful, uh, unique uh, stamp of, uh, of the gospel that sets itself apart from all other worldviews, world religions, and so forth. Right. Yeah. One of my favorite Bible verses is, uh, is of course, from Paul from 2 Corinthians 8, where it says that uh, 
uh, God, though rich, became poor so that we should become rich. And that's something we, we need to understand that, that Christianity uh, is not karma. It's not, it's not by, by your own works. And you already mentioned before that we should, uh, quote unquote, save ourselves. And um, to, to give a bit, a bit more background information about myself, I wasn't always, I was a nominal Christian, but also I, already, every, I was always like, um, uh, we need to save the world. We need to save the world. Like, dude, the world will be here right long after we're gone. <laughs> the world will save itself. We need, we, we have to take care of ourselves first. So it's this very noble thing, but also very arbitrary uh, to think that we can, that we can save the world or, or even ourselves. And even those uh, who don't believe in God or don't believe that he can redeem us. Uh, I already know inside their head that they know they, they can't do anything. Like there are, wars breaking out there are uh, suicides there there's there's this um pressure on our shoulders of ex existential crisis like we we know subconsciously that we can't save ourselves mm -hmm. like uh, we can do whatever we want but i do believe that as paul mentioned uh, in romans 1 and romans 2 that god has put the law in our hearts and we know that we need him we, we somewhat know that we that we need this particular grace this bridge towards where we are right now to where we should be. Yeah, that's right. Um, so my next question is, is how does eternity relate to our suffering? Like, like as, as I call uh, uh, our life here, and it's a fart in the wind. Like, it, it, it's like almost of no significance, but compared to eternity, uh, how in, in what case does our suffering compare to that? Yeah, this is a, a huge question, of course, and we are in many ways in no shape uh, intellectually uh, to, you know, to speak, or morally even, uh, to speak about the connection between the two. We, we do know from what Paul writes, for example, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, that the you know, in, in, in Paul speaking in that same book about being shipwrecked, being beaten, being imprisoned, being, you know, you know people trying to stone him to death and so forth, being Our hounded, <laughs> there you go, yeah, being hounded by, uh, by mobs, you know, Jewish and Gentile and so forth, he, he you know, and, and bearing in his own body the marks of Jesus. Uh, but then he says that these, he calls them light, momentary afflictions, light momentary afflictions that's creating uh, in us a, you know, creating a, a great weight of glory that far surpasses them. Well, you know, you, know, you think that there's some very terrible things that happen here, some, uh, some awful things that are taking place. And we don't want to minimize those. We don't want to treat them as though they're trivial. Uh, Jesus came into this world. Uh, he bore suffering uh, on our behalf. Uh, he entered into this world. Uh, we, you know, so when we look at the horrible things that happened, the horrible, you know, just uh, my wife and I today were talking with a, a young woman from, uh, you know, from Pakistan, and she had just been uh, attending to a young school girl who had been raped uh, as a Christian girl, uh, raped by a Muslim man. And uh, she went to the police station and tried to, uh, 
uh, talk to the police, but of course they're they're not going to find the the Muslim man who raped her. They are just able to get away with uh, with things because you know they're they're in the majority. They're the they're the Muslims, and they, they look down upon the Christians. And so it's just a, a terrible, terrible thing. And so we we talked through some of these things with this um, uh, uh, young woman uh, who is reporting this to us. And we look at those things and we, you know, we, we're baffled. We, we are stunned. Uh, we don't know how to make sense of them. But it is so important for us to consider the broader picture, even if we don't have the answers to why did this happen? Why did that happen? Uh, we're not in the position to make those sorts of judgments, but we do know a few things. Uh, one, as I said, that in light of our present sufferings, what God promises to those who love him will far outshine any suffering that we have experienced here. God guarantees it. And in Second in 1 Corinthians 2, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And this is a promise to us that we, we cling to, we trust, especially in those times of, of darkness. Uh, and these sorts of tragedies that we often read about in the papers uh, day by day um, that come into our lives even. Um, I have Ukrainian relatives that we're taking and trying to care for. They've had to flee the Ukraine and flee Ukraine. And, uh, and so they are, you know, they've been traumatized. Uh, they, you know, kids that have come out of this, they aren't, you know, have, you know, they wouldn't speak for two or three weeks because they're so traumatized. And we just, uh, you know, can only be a presence to them and try to uh, help them through some of these practical uh, challenges they're facing now that they've been displaced. But, uh, but in this, in this scenario, we also need to remember that God is not removed or distant or aloof from our suffering, that God enters into this world, uh, getting his feet dirty, his hands bloody, uh, facing uh, cruelty, facing injustice, uh, facing uh, such uh, harsh opposition, uh, though good, though innocent, though perfect. Uh, and God also identifies with his people in their suffering. Uh, when Saul has been persecuting believers, Jesus confronts him on the Damascus road saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, there is this shared suffering that God enters into the suffering of his creatures. Wow. Yeah. And this shows the greatness of God because he, his capacity to suffer is, uh, is, is proportional to uh, the greatness of his love. And so we ought to remember this as well. And another thing to keep in mind is as we look at evil, as we look at uh, the terrible suffering in this world, we also need to remember that God guarantees that justice will be done. Cosmic justice will come, that people will not get away with murder millions of times over like Hitler or Stalin or uh, lesser Armenian evil folks. genocides. Armenian uh, genocides. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so God, will, God guarantees that uh, justice will be done and that virtue um, in his name will be rewarded by supreme happiness or joy. Uh, that they will unite, uh, that, we, uh, that we will see the convergence of those things, that God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. Uh, this is the guarantee. And so if we reject God in the face of evil and suffering, 
what ends up happening is that we lose many of those great resources of the gospel by saying there is no God. If you get rid of God, where does, where does the standard of evil come from in the first place? If you get rid of God, where does human dignity come from in the first place? Uh, if you get rid of God, there is no redemption possible. There is no guarantee of a life to come in which all tears will be wiped away from our eyes. There is no guarantee for cosmic justice. Uh, all of these things are promised in the gospel. But if you get rid of God, you get rid of the gospel, you're left with far greater problems to deal with. Doesn't mean that the problem of evil is easy to deal with, not at all. But everyone has to grapple with the problem of evil. It's not just the theists or the Christian's burden. Everyone sure. must grapple with the problem of evil. And the question is, which worldview, which outlook, which uh, philosophy of life offers us the best resources, the most fruitful resources to help us grapple with these deep problems of evil and suffering? Right. That, that was a uh, that was a spirit-filled, powerful, wonderful answer. Thank you for that. That, that yeah, that's a, a very short question, but a very amazing answer. And it 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 reminded me of uh, one of the two times where our own Lord cried, and uh, like the, the the other one was Luke nineteen forty one, which is a particular context, but this particular context of John eleven, mm -hmm. um, Jesus didn't cry because uh, Lazarus died because he as God he can like resurrect uh, at any moment as he wills but he had to cry because of the faith of Martha so um, when we in the face of evil in the face of these cosmic tests that we are in but we still maintain our faith and trust and love in the Lord that just yeah um yeah, that, that's just, just something that can make even God emotional. And we need to understand that, uh, as Paul already mentioned, also in, in Romans, that uh, in the face, like everything that we are experiencing now is just a glimpse of what is what is to come. And uh, that's a very, very soothing thing to know. And I do believe that not many people have that assurance. Mm -hmm. And as you already mentioned before, um, all these, like, I grew up with the fact of the Armenian genocide, as I mentioned before. And as a kid, I was like, are those people really getting to getting away with this? Like, are all those, every every type of evil folk mm -hmm. are not going to, going to be justified? So the concept of that we are just sacks of meat, like, with firing neurons, and that's all it is. I'm like, no, it can't be. It can't be. So, sure. it, yeah. So my last question Um uh, why respect God's own no, uh, unknowability with our own human limitations? Aren't we, aren't we already uh, intelligent creatures enough to to derive such information? What would you say? Yeah, yeah. I think when it comes to um, our ability to grasp uh, these great things that we've been talking about, these momentous things. Um, I think part of, obviously, part, you know, philosophy is the love of wisdom. And I think part of wisdom is recognition of our own limitations, our own inability to grasp certain things, that there are mysteries, uh, that there are conundrums, uh, that there are problems that uh, when we deal with things from a mere, for example, a merely intellectual point of view, uh, try to explain the problem of evil. Well, these ex explanations can seem very cold, uh, very detached, and uh, you know even even irrelevant. Uh, 
because there is more to, for example, the problem of evil than just intellectual answers. There's also the emotional problem of evil. And uh, so often we think, oh, I can just give you all the answers to the problem of evil intellectually. And we fail to recognize that there are some uh, deep, profound, horrendous evils uh, and suffering that we simply put our hands over our mouths and we are dumbstruck. We don't know what to say. And we, like Job's friends for seven days, uh, keep silent. And uh, yeah, the problem began when the Job, Job's friends started to open their mouths and uh, confront Job. Uh, but uh, when they were just silent, keeping their mouths closed, uh, they, were, they were doing the right thing. They were doing the service, uh, a kind service to, uh, to Job. And, and I think too, we ought to recognize that, uh, that a lot of people, when it comes to even signs and wonders, a lot of people will uh, say, well, if God really exists, he ought to do this for me. He ought to make himself more obvious. And well, the question is, well, how open are you to whatever glimmers of light God is willing to give you? Uh, some people want God to jump through their hoops, uh, God to meet their demands. And if we are creatures and God is the creator, uh, we're not properly positioned to make those kinds of demands. And so, uh, so we ought to humbly receive what God is willing to give us. And if we expect God to, you know, if we, you know, if we make these demands upon God, well, why should he stoop to our, uh, our measly demands? Uh, Jesus, when he was um, told to you know, perform signs, he said uh, that, a, that, a, that a crooked and, and, and uh, you know, perverse generation, a wicked generation seeks signs. Because, well, for one thing, signs aren't going to bring us to the place where we are properly aligned with God. Think of all the signs and wonders that the Israelites saw in the wilderness, but most of them died. They perished in unbelief. So just because you've got signs and wonders going for you doesn't guarantee that you're actually going to believe. And so, uh, so we need to recognize that there's more that is required than just mere evidences that God uh, you know, ought to do these things for us. And we also need to recognize that there are certain things that we won't be able to know, that we can't know. Uh, we certainly can't know God exhaustively, the infinite God. And uh, that there are certain things that are not available to us to know. Uh, we think about this, tying it back to the problem of evil, uh, that in Luke chapter 13, there are two problems of evil that are mentioned. One is where uh, one is a moral evil, where uh, Pilate uh, has uh, Galilean worshipers put to death in the temple and their blood is mingled with the sacrifices of the animals. And Jesus said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the rest? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And in the same way, this Tower of Siloam, Jesus said, uh, this is a natural evil. Uh, the Tower of Siloam that falls and kills 18 Israelites. And Jesus said, do you think that they were worse thinner, sinners than the rest of the Israelites? And he said, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't offer a commentary on why this happened, why that happened. Mm -hmm. Jesus is saying, let it be an occasion for you to make sure that your own relationship with God is rightly positioned. Make sure that you are rightly aligned with God. Repent, or you will likewise perish. So let evil serve as a warning. Yeah, we don't, we're not going to be able to figure it out. Jesus doesn't give an answer uh, to why this happened, 
but, uh, but it's often the case that through some of these baffling evils that we encounter, those things that are so troubling, uh, that it's a way for God to get our attention in a way that, got to, for God to get our attention in a way that nothing else really can. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that God whispers us to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. That pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Uh, sometimes that's the only thing that will, right. will wake us up. And uh, so anyway, those are just a few reflections on, on your question, mm. but, uh, but hopefully that's been helpful. Thank you. No, no very, very soothing. Absolutely very soothing. And it, it does remind me of uh, uh, what our Lord says of, about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, because there is so much God can do to convince you. But if you are going to accept him or not, that's still up to you. And if you, even if God would stand right in front of you, would still could say like, I'm hallucinating, like, it's 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 an heart issue. So yeah, yeah. and it's it's also not biblical to say that um, uh, those who don't know Jesus automatically go to hell. Never in a, one time does it actually mention. So you are judged by what you do know. And a lot of people know Jesus but have never accepted them. So Lord have mercy yeah, on us yeah. all. God judges us according to the light that He has given to us, not what we haven't had. Exactly. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Doctor Paul, what can I say? Thank you so much for. Yeah, for, for doing the session with us, as I already mentioned before, folks, uh, buy this book. This is a very technical book, I'm going to be honest. If you are really like someone who's go uh, really loves the, 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 the meat of scripture, highly recommendable. Um, Dr. Paul Pope and I will give you, I will send, I will put uh, uh, every kind of link that you have in the description box. I wish you nothing but the best for you and your uh, precious family. Thank you for every for every kind of work you're doing. I hear so many Christian apologists that they are benefiting of your work. So the Lord is blessing you to bless us. So I could not be more grateful uh, to have you here, first of all. Yeah. Well, appreciate that. Uh, Dank je wel. Tot ziens. All the best. Graag gedaan. Top. Dank you.